Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm excited today to be speaking with Dr. Dowdy Abe. Dr. Abe is a Seattle-based writer and historian and is professor of humanities at Seattle Central College. And we will be discussing his new book, Emerald Street, a history of hip hop in Seattle, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Dowdy. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about you. Tell us about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in writing and in education and in history. Uh, Well, myself, I'm a Seattle guy uh, raised in the central district uh, of the city, uh, the the traditionally black neighborhood uh, of Seattle. Um, And, uh, you know, just uh, I, I think that... Uh, like uh, many people my age um, who kind of grew up uh, around, so I'm 52, just turned 52, and, and so was was raised in, in, in a lot of ways um, by hip-hop, uh, per se. Um, and so I think that uh, as people my age, and uh, not only in the education professions, but certainly in other, other professions as well, have, uh, have gotten older, uh, you know, hip hop in, I think in a variety of ways has influenced what we have done professionally. Like I said, not just educationally, but perhaps, you know, you might think of like the ad industry or, or, or what have you. And so my, myself, uh, <clears throat> as someone who's just been, been interested kind of in the past. Uh, and so there's a, a little bit of a convergence with uh, with me getting into education and making the transition from I started off teaching teaching kids and and would have stuff like uh, you know there was I remember this was in the 1990s and I remember um, uh, uh, multiplication tables that was that was it was a wrap it was it was a con- cassette tapes were still uh, <laughs> were still were still in use and there was a a wrap of the multiplication tables that that was you we used in math class and. Uh, and so it's just uh, it's just been kind of a, a natural convergence of uh, the things that, that have interested me and uh, influenced me culturally growing up and then this field of, uh, of, of education and then uh, kind of a, a side trip into 
into uh, research and scholarship as I got into higher ed around around these the this culture and uh, kind of the adjacent cultures and adjacent social issues to hip hop around around race and class and uh, the, the past stories of those things and so I'd I'd say those that the the convergence of of people my age uh, the cultural influences uh, have now kind of been brought to bear uh, in our professional lives, and I'm, I'm just one example of that. Well, to that point, kind of to, to, to zoom in on that a little bit, what drew you to this particular history that you tell in this book? Why a book on the history of hip-hop and on the history of hip-hop in Seattle specifically? Uh, so I was saying earlier that, that, that I'm a Seattle person. Um, I, uh, I, I, you know, there was a, another book that I wrote maybe oh, almost 10 years ago now, um, called Six in the Morning, and it was a, kind of a, a, an analysis of West Coast hip-hop music, which essentially is translated to California, uh, hip-hop from California between 1987 and 1992. And kind of the, the argument of that book is that was a critical time and place in terms of the, uh, the, the movement, uh, kind of the takeover in a lot of ways of, of hip-hop on, on mainstream culture. The, the, the subtitle of the book is is the kind of the transformation that time and period and that uh, the transformation of mainstream culture and so um there was the process of researching and writing that book kind of in the late 2000s early 2010s and then that was finally published i want to say in like 2013 and it was almost immediately after that that uh that i began work on emerald street and really the the genesis of emerald street was i had been asked to write a uh, this is like in 2006 I've been asked to uh, to write a about a thousand word story in the in the it's it's called the Stranger. It's like this local kind of a alternative arts and culture newspaper uh, about a thousand word history on on the hip hop of uh, the history of hip hop in Seattle uh, for this paper. And so as I got to researching and getting into it, I was like, okay, well, there's there's a, there's 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 a story here. There's a book here that that probably needs to be written. Um, and so, but I, I had, uh, I had, you know, other things going and so wasn't able to really get to it until almost kind of like the mid, early to, early to mid 2010s in terms of like turning my, my full attention to, to, to putting research into it. Um, and, and so like I was saying earlier, it was just this convergence of, of, uh, of what I'm doing, what I was doing, what I am doing professionally uh, at the time. There's a, there's a hip hop uh, culture class uh, uh, that, I, that I created at Seattle Central in 2003 uh, that has been running there ever since. And so it, this, this was kind of a, kind of a natural uh, outgrowth of teaching those classes. Uh, like I said, the research and scholarship that went into writing Six in the Morning uh, was then turned to uh, to the story of hip hop in Seattle and uh, the progression of the scene between the time when I first kind of had the idea that there could be a book written in the late 2000s to around the time when it gets finished and uh, you know at least has a, a workable manuscript, there was the the whole uh, uh, Macklemore situation, and I feel like uh, the uh, emergence of Sir Mix a Lot in the early or in the midish to latish 1980s, and then the subsequent uh, rise of Macklemore in the early 2010s provided some nice kind of bookends 
um, to kind of tell the story, not obviously not only of the people who became quote unquote famous, um, but also give some context to the scene and, and, and flavor to the scene that they came from and, and that helped make them uh, the artists that they were. And so a lot of ways, uh, the book is really about, uh, well, it's about a couple of things. It's about a uh, uh, highlighting this, uh, this, this massively, in my opinion, massively underappreciated uh, aspect of not just local, but regional uh, and kind of coastal history, uh, cultural history, music history uh, that has been overlooked, uh, in my opinion, to a great to a great extent. Um, and then also is positioning the contributions of a place like Seattle within the larger uh, national and international narrative of hip hop. And I think that uh, the, the, the story that, that emerges from here, like every other story, is a unique story about the local scene. Um, but also there, is, there are unique aspects that have helped uh, to create a scene that has produced, uh, I, I think, what some people might consider a disproportionate amount of, 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 of success uh, when it comes to the to the uh, to the rap category in the in the Grammy Awards over the last uh, several decades. So so the book on the history was was kind of due, and, and and in a lot of ways it's 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 kind of my love letter to the city that I love, and 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 having it be out there and be in the world, and 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 having the opportunity to to give people a chance, like I said, to give a a, a larger a sense of context as to what hip-hop was and why it expanded the way it did uh, first nationally and then what that looked like uh, here in this in this unique local scene. It's This book is the kind of story that I would love to see other people take on for, for other cities and other places. Um, I uh, Maybe like a year or so ago, I talked to uh, Dr. Felicia Viator about her recent book on the history of uh, hip-hop in L.A. in the late 80s and early 90s and the rise of N.W.A. and, and things like that. And that was a, a great book. It is a great book. But the story of hip-hop in L.A. is, is you know, a, a decently well-known one. Whereas reading this book, you know, I didn't know really anything about the history of hip-hop in Seattle. And I'm sure there's other stories that deserve you know kind of a louder telling in uh in in western history elsewhere too so i'd love to see this book serve as a model for for other people out there well, as well it's funny that you mentioned that because you know in the 90s you started to see uh some books that were more kind of like the uh, overall history uh of mm -hmm. hip-hop and i'm thinking of like I think there was like a Vibe magazine, History of Hip Hop volume, and then you get into the 2000s, and then there's Can't Stop, Won't Stop uh, by Jeff Chang, which, which a lot of people kind of looked at as a definitive text in terms of covering the entirety uh, of hip hop culture. But, then, but now recently, as you mentioned, you're starting to see um, uh, books about and projects uh, uh, about discrete topics and about specific regions and about specific mm -hmm. times. And so... Like I said, there's there's the the six in the morning book, um, and there's also uh, uh, the, this book on Seattle. But there are there have been and there are books um, about uh, the South. Uh, there's a book called Third Coast uh, that came out. I want to say maybe in the midish to latish two thousands. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like I said about about the South, about Outkast and about Timberland and, and and that kind of thing. And then there's there's been a book about. Uh, 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 music bounce music in New Orleans, um, 
there's been a book about the history of hip-hop in Houston. Um, and so you're starting to see these kind of specific regional, uh, isolate, kind of isolated uh, tales of history uh, around the culture pop up. And I feel like Emerald Street and, and the books that I just mentioned are, are part of that new phase of hip-hop scholarship where, where specific uh, times and places are focused in on. Before we get into some of the details of, of the story that, that you tell in this book, I want to ask a couple context-setting questions. Can you tell us a little bit, a very, like, a, as much as is possible, a brief history of the city of Seattle itself, and specifically the history of Black Seattle? So the city of Seattle uh, in the late 1880s is a place of a few thousand people uh, it's mostly logging that's happening here, but uh, slowly uh, diversity starts to creep in as as different people from different places begin to to make Seattle home and hearing about opportunities in a, in a relatively new place like this. And uh, one of the interesting things about the Northwest, especially uh, as it relates to black people, is that uh, in the 1880s, uh, black people were actually voting uh, in Washington state. Uh, and for a time in the 1880s, black, uh, black men were voting throughout the 1880s, but for a time in the 1880s, black women were also voting in Washington state. Um, and that uh, was, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve, uh, racially speaking, in, uh, in, in comparison to some other places around the United States. And so uh, that, that, and one of the other things that drew uh, black people to this area was what was known as free air, uh, and that was kind of the absence of the most blatant forms of racial discrimination that were a part of everyday life for black people in the South. Um, and so that's not to say, though, that, uh, that, that there was no discrimination and there was no racism up here. Uh, it just looked uh, a lot different uh, here than it did in, in places like the, like the Southeastern United States. Um, and so I would say that the, the kind of the turning point for the black community in Seattle was right around World War II um, because of uh, uh, the uh, executive order uh, as the U.S. entered World War II, uh, you know, uh, banning the discrimination in hiring from any uh, defense contractor that was, that was doing business with the government. Uh, that meant that there were jobs here in places like Boeing. Um, and so as the 1940s went on, now, one of the things that would happen in some places that were populated by people coming into work uh, during the war is that afterward they would leave. Uh, but that wasn't the case in Seattle, at least as far as the, the black population went. So in 1940, you have a population of roughly around 4,000 black people in Seattle. By 1950, that number has grown to over 16,000. So not only were people... Uh, were black people coming to Seattle, but they were staying. And not only coming for the work during that time, but they were staying and, and, and hearing, you know, uh, relatives come and, and hearing about, in fact, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, there's a famous um, uh, newspaper in Chicago called The Defender. And in 1950, the Chicago Defender encouraged black people to move to Seattle, calling it the new frontier of racial, race relations. So there was definitely a perception uh, that life in Washington state and in Seattle was better for black people than it could be in a lot of other places 
uh, around the United States. So that's that's really a, 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 a lot of where the kind of liberal reputation of Seattle comes from. But, you know, things are not always as they seem. Um, and I think that uh, the the. One of the one of the key phrases from the book uh, that really talks about the reality uh, of black life in Seattle uh, is, is it mentions the illusion of inclusion. Um, and this really comes to light when you think about things like the gentrification that's happening in the previously cent mentioned central district that I grew up in. Uh, housing prices are just through the roof. Uh, this means that uh, families who maybe own their homes outright. Uh, you know, elders that are on fixed incomes all of a sudden because the taxes are so high cannot afford to live in the city anymore. Um, and so developers are taking up every kind of little inch of, of corner sliver of land they can find to put up, uh, to put up new structures. And so there's a lot of changes uh, happening in the city as far as that goes. And then the other part uh, that's most obvious anyway, at least, at least in my eyes, is the, uh, the passage of, uh, of, uh, the measure that made uh, cannabis legal uh, in Washington state. Uh, and there is a, a very kind of iconic corner uh, in the Central District, um, 23rd Avenue and Union, East Union Street. And that was a corner that was busy in the 1980s uh, during the kind of rise of the crack epidemic. And, you know, there were many things that you could buy on that corner, not just crack, but also but also marijuana. And there were many, many arrests that went down uh, on that corner, uh, predominantly of black and brown young people uh, selling this. And so now on that same corner, uh, there is a marijuana, there's a cannabis dispensary uh, and it's a white owned shop and it has not been lost on many people in the community uh, that, you know, when, when things weren't illegal, uh, it was the young black and brown people who were being arrested on that corner for selling the very thing that this new uh, marijuana merchant is now selling legally and making an absolute killing off of. And so those are just a couple of examples uh, that, I, that I'm referring to when I, when I mean uh, the, the initial idea of free air being something that, that attracted so many black people to come live in this part of the country. And then the actual reality lived experience of the illusion of inclusion um, really being the, the, the the actual experience that, that many people face once they got here. You could weave an entire history of the United States out of just that story that you told about that one street corner in, uh, in, in Seattle right there. That's a fascinating story. Yep. Absolutely. So the other, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other uh, context setting question that I wanted to uh, address before we kind of dive more into the book is what is the, the larger history nationwide of hip hop as an art form? Where and when does it originate? And what is the sort of arc of this story? How and why does it grow increasingly popular over the course of the late 20th century? So hip hop begins in a very interesting time uh, socially in American history. Um, it's the 19, early 1970s uh, in New York City. Um, we are not too far removed from the civil rights era and the landmark civil rights legislation of 1964. Um, and at that time, you had a, a lot of expectations around how and when life would get better. 
But by the time you get to, and a lot of optimism, but by the time you get to the early 1970s in, in places like New York City, this wasn't only the case in New York City, poverty was in effect all over the country. But just speaking in terms of, of, of how and why hip hop came about, uh, it's, 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 you, you go, it, you have to, it's, 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 there, there's a great reference that I can give you here. So if you ever get a chance to, uh, to watch the movie Wild Style, Wild Style is con considered like the first hip hop movie. Um, and it's almost like a documentary, uh, just in terms of like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the acting and, you know, the production value isn't, isn't top. But if, if you want to get a sense of what it was like at the beginning, then watch the film Wild Style. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that the film goes out of its way to do is to give kind of like background shots or environment shots, you know what I'm saying, to, to set the scene for set the stage for the next scene coming up. And so many of the background shots are just blocks and blocks and blocks of rubble strewn fields, burnt out buildings. I mean, it is just, it's a level of desolation that, you know, for most people, the, the, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And so this is the environment that we're talking about people living in coming out of a time when they thought things would be better. So people's expectations were up here, but their experiences in day-to-day -day life were down there. And so you, you, you have a, a recession that turns, it comes in, in in the 1970s and with recessions come budget cuts and, and everything everything is cut and education is no different. And so if you're talking about budget cuts in education, what are the first things that are usually to go? Well, or you usually go, the first things to go usually are, are uh, art and music programs. Um, and so you had situations where young people who had the creative urge, but did not necessarily have the resources to fulfill those urges, uh, have for what, what, for many of them, was their only access to those outlets. So the music classes are out, the art classes are out, if they don't have money to buy a instrument on their own or hire a private tutor or buy these art materials, then they're just out of luck. And so for so many of them, they did not have the resources to compensate. Um, however, that does not mean that the creative urges are not still there. So for the, for as uh, hip hop originally starts to emerge, there starts to be, there becomes uh, four kind of distinct elements of hip hop. And that would be breaking or breakdancing, which is the dance element. That would be graffiti, uh, which is the written or artistic element. That would be DJing, which is the musical element. And that would be emceeing or rapping, which is the vocal element. Um, and so in the movie Wild Style, that was, at least for someone like me, uh, that was the first time that I really had a good kind of visual sense or representation of how the four elements uh, uh, interacted uh, with each other. Um, and so if you're saying, okay, it was actually graffiti, which really kind of had its first, uh, if, if, if you're saying the people of New York, the average person in New York at that time, well, how would they have interacted with one of these elements of hip hop? It was actually graffiti. Um, because these graf young graffiti kids would start, it starts off because it's, it's a little funny, kind of a funny story, but it starts off where in, I want to say the summer of 1971, uh, the message Taki 180, 183, T-A-K-I 
1-800-273-1183 started showing up on so many trains in New York City that the New York Times sent a reporter to find out what this was. And what the reporter found was that Taki was this uh, Greek kid named uh, Demetrius, uh, but his nickname was Taki, and he lived on 183rd Street. And as soon as that story came out, everybody realized that Taki was famous. And so that inspired a lot of young kids, a lot of young hip-hop kids to start, okay, how can I make my name? Because so much of hip-hop is, is, is about being heard and about being seen and about leaving your mark. And so what young kids start doing is breaking, in, breaking into the train yards and they paint these massive, elaborate pieces, short for masterpieces, that take up the entire side of the, of the subway car. And so you can debate the... Uh, the, the, the moral aspect of it and whether it's crime and whether it's vandalism. I mean, technically, I guess it is. I guess there's no debate there. But you cannot debate the artistic integrity uh, of what people were seeing. And so these, these trains run all over the city and pull into subway stations uh, that carry thousands and thousands of people uh, all across town. And so being able to have your pieces on, these, uh, on the sides of these trains as they, as they ran around town was the first kind of aspect of hip-hop or the first kind of taste of hip-hop uh, that the general public uh, really kind of interacted with. Uh, it's the same kind of thing with breaking. Uh, breaking, breakdancing wasn't a, a, a form of dance before hip-hop came around. Hip-hop is about making something from nothing. And so you have uh, elements of, of tap, of lindy hopping, of capoeira, uh, all kind of brought in to, to, to bear in the creation of this new style of dance. And as opposed to traditional dances where, uh, like I said, tradition is, is very important. Uh, with breaking, it was all about what can you do that's not traditional? What can you do that other people haven't seen before? Um, and your own individual style and flavor uh, are the things that, 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 that are important. Uh, going against tradition are things that, that are important and how you can how you can serve that up as a, as a, as a tasty dish, as it were, for, for the people who are who are watching these competitions. Um, and in the same way with with DJing, you know, uh, as I was saying earlier about people who uh, whose whose access school kids whose access was cut off to, to the arts uh, and music. Um, they didn't have, you know, if they don't have money to, 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 you know, go buy their own trumpet or their own flute or guitar, well, what can you do? What can we do? Well, young kids started figuring out that if you got two turntables with copies of the same record uh, and a mixer, uh, you know, you could essentially create new music. Uh, there may have been a song that had perhaps like a, oh, I don't know, maybe like a 10 or 15 second drum break. Uh, that you absolutely loved. Uh, and by manipulating the two records uh, and the mixer, you could extend that 10 or 15 second little drum break as long as you want and essentially make a new song out of it. Uh, so again, that's creating something from nothing, something that, that wasn't even there. People, you know, people my age grew up where don't touch the record player. You know, your parents saying, don't touch the record, you scratch the record. Don't, don't do that, don't do that. And here these people were actually scratching the record uh, the verb, anyway, for good kind of scratching uh, to, to make up an entire kind of new sound and kind of new movement um, within, uh, within the confines and the context of hip-hop. And then just kind of lastly, 
uh, am saying, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, this, this comes from uh, the kind of the black oral tradition. Um, and it, 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 it's stemming kind of from the fact that, you know, uh, oral, oral story and, 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 and telling of story and talking story was, was an important part uh, and ha has been an important part uh, of African culture for some time. But once uh, black people were brought over here to America uh, and during slave times, uh, reading was outlawed and the, the punishment uh, for a slave who was found to be literate and able to read was, was oftentimes death. Um, and so you had people compensating for that. If in, in the absence of, of, of written literacy, then uh, you go over to the other side and you sharpen your, your skills in oral literacy. Um, and this becomes kind of part of, of, of black culture. And if you think about someone like Muhammad Ali, he was somebody who would kind of talk trash in, in poetry rhyme form. And, and uh, there's, 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 been, there's been rappers and there's been talk about rappers who, who not only early rappers, but also people who have come in, in time since that have, that have looked back and kind of reflected on someone like Muhammad Ali as, a, as an influence, even though he wasn't necessarily active musically, the style and the way that he presented himself and the trash that he would talk uh, was very much uh, in the mold of rappers who would come after him. And so all of those elements of hip hop, uh, as they emerge uh, from New York City uh, in the 1970s, are, are coalesced and kind of culminated in the fall of 1979 with the release of the song Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. And that is the first time that uh, hip hop culture begins to kind of physically travel outside of New York City, because now there's a record that everybody can hear and people are wondering. I was one of those people who got it back in 1979 and heard it for the first time and was just astounded by the vocals because I had never heard anything like that before. The only, the only vocals I had ever heard on music was, uh, were people singing. Um, and these guys weren't singing, but they were talking. And, and, and not only that, but they were talking about things that, you know, that, that, so, uh, I, one of the, one of the lines is, uh, by, uh, I want to say Big Bank Hank. Uh, he's saying after pool, after school, I take a dip in the pool, which is really on the wall. I got a color TV so I can see the Knicks play basketball. And I remember I'm nine years old at the time. And I remember hearing that thinking, I like basketball. And at the time, you know what I'm saying? We have a black and white television. So I'm saying, Hmm, I would like to watch basketball on a color television. So the things that they were saying spoke to someone like me immediately. And I was just completely drawn in, not just me, but you know, millions of people across, across the country. And so as uh, as it starts to to really come out and push, you you have the rise of hip hop, but at the same time you you have the kind of concurrent rise of cable television and MTV, and MTV was not really about playing black music uh, most for most of the 1980s. Aside from Prince or Michael Jackson, it wasn't too many artists that were that were really getting play. And so if I'm kind of pointing at at, at uh, historical kind of like curves and in, 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 in kind of momentous shifts in the culture, I would say that the 1986 release of 
the Run DMC album, uh, Raising Hell, uh, which I believe Walk This Way was on Raising Hell. And that duet with Aerosmith really kind of helped the culture turn the corner, at least as far as popular culture goes, because uh, now MTV has a rap song that they're interested in playing. And not only that, but they're interested in playing it because it has a very MTV-friendly dynamic to it with the inclusion of Aerosmith uh, and the video that they're playing. And this whole playing out of the video, acting like, you know, they weren't really getting along at first in the video, and then in the video they all end up on stage together and they're all friendly. Um, and then it's not too long after that, maybe it, uh, two years or so after that, that you have the premiere of Yo! MTV Raps which is kind of a, a, a game changer in the sense of it, it, there is now a program that every, a singular program that everybody across the country who's interested can tune into where you have the, uh, the, the, the premieres of new videos and you have interviews with artists and it provides access in a way uh, that, that people had not had before. And it's, it's so, it's, you know, students, through no fault of their own, it's just when they were born, you know, students today really have, you have, so, they have so much access to information about their music at that time in the 80s that was, you know, you just kind of found out when stuff was coming out when it hit the record store. Maybe if you get, maybe if you have a magazine that has an interview that gives you a heads up that something's coming out. Um, but, you know, in a lot of ways, it was an information desert during that time, uh, just because we, we would want so much. We want to consume so much and learn and read and, and view but there were limited options, whereas today there's plenty of options. At that time, it was it was you know it was it was much different. It was much it was much uh, the pace of information and everything that we had to consume was much more regulated and slower. And so, if you move to then to the uh, to what I'll say is the 19 is 1991. Uh, I'll say that the the Rodney King situation is the other uh, important turning point. And I say that because not only, you know, the, obviously the situation itself, but the fact that it happened on the West Coast. And this was where, where Run DMC and Aerosmith, Run DMC from Hollis, Queens was, was New York. Uh, NWA uh, and uh, their, their 1988 album, Straight Outta Compton, uh, obviously has a, a song uh, called F the Police. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the, the, the brilliance of that song, at least for me, is the framing of the lyrical delivery uh, as testimony by the prosecuting attorneys who are the members of the group. And uh, Dr. Dre is the judge, and Ice Cube and Eazy-E are the, are the, are the attorneys, and, and it's actually the police uh, who is on trial. Um, and so it's, it's, it's telling the uh, experiential stories of young black males uh, and how they're treated uh, at the hands of police, in this case, uh, the LAPD. And at the time, obviously, there was a lot of uproar about it and, and uh, police groups, you know, saying that this, you know, causes, you know, police to be targeted and, and those types of things. Um, but again, if, if, if you were listening, the, the song was about what was happening to these young men. And so fast forward a couple of years, um, you have the Rodney King thing. And for most people, while they may have acknowledged, for many people in the mainstream, while they may have acknowledged 
that police misconduct occurs, uh, particularly in a disproportionate fashion for black people, uh, they may not have allowed themselves to believe that it could be as bad as what they saw in the video uh, of Rodney King. Um, and yet, after that video comes out, a lot of mainstream uh, news uh, operations start to uh, look towards uh, not just NWA, but a lot more of these gangster rappers, I'm using gangster in kind of quotes, uh, like Ice-T kind of, uh, kind of, you know, asking what's going to happen next because, you know, in the aftermath of Rodney King tape, people in the NWA was like, see, this is what we were talking about. People weren't trying to hear it when the song came out, but this is what the song was really referring to. And with the, uh, with the, uh, the jury trial and the decision and the not guilty for, for all four officers and the, the, uh, the, the destruction and, and anger uh, that followed that, not only in, in, in Los Angeles, but there was, it went down here a little bit in Seattle and a few other places, uh, as well. And, uh, in many ways, uh, hip hop was looked at as the, the, the source that translated what was going to happen. And there were people actually, you know, asking questions of some of these rappers, like, you know, can you predict what's going to happen next? Or what do you think is going to happen next? Because they seem to, to have, had such uh, their fingers on the pulse uh, of what had already happened with the Rodney King uh, tape, uh, trial, uh, verdict, and community response. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so while all this is happening nationally what is going on in seattle specifically let's 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 zoom in back on seattle here when the genre is still in its infancy and when it is growing from the late 70s up into the 1980s what is going on in the seattle scene itself how do people like sir mixalot and other local artists how do they get their start and how is seattle connected to this wider story both in washington state and elsewhere throughout the united states well one of the things about the scene here has to do with the, the geographic location. Uh, if you think about the kind of cultural capitals uh, in the different areas of the United States, if you're thinking about the, 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 the cultural capital of the northeast part of the country, it's you know, probably most obviously New York City. If you're thinking about the capital of the, uh, of the southeast, uh, maybe it's Atlanta or maybe it's Miami. Uh, if you're thinking about the capital of the Southwest, it would be Los Angeles. Uh, but there's no doubt that the capital of the Northwest part of the country is Seattle. And, and there's another element to that here. All of those cities that I just mentioned as, you know, capitals of the different regions of the country, they are, 
they are they have uh, other large metropolitan areas relatively close to them. Uh, you know, like Philadelphia is not all that far from New York. You know what I mean? And Philadelphia is a major city. And so I'm just saying that 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 in Seattle's case, uh, there if you're if you're traveling south, uh, it, no disrespect to Portland. It, you know, although anytime you preface a comment by saying no disrespect, guess what's about to happen? Disrespect. But I'm just saying that no disrespect to Portland, but traveling south, the next biggest city you get to is the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. And that's about a thousand miles, almost a thousand miles away. You're traveling east. Uh, the next uh, biggest city you'll get to is Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, which is about some maybe around fifteen hundred miles away. Uh, and so while there are not necessarily huge population centers in between all of those places that I just mentioned in Seattle, there are consumers of culture nonetheless at each stop along the way. And so in, in many ways, not just in terms of music, but culture and newspaper and sports teams, Seattle's kind of the capital of this huge kind of swath of land up here in the northwest corner of the country. And that regional isolation has really led uh, uh, to uh, a license to be creative artistically. Um, there's, there's the, there's in, in the book, uh, the one of the co-owner or the co-founders of Sub Pop Records uh, makes makes that makes note of just that that because of this regional isolation, people didn't feel compelled to to try to uh, to uh, imitate or do what other people in other places around the country were doing. And so keeping that in mind, as we talk about the early kind of 1980s, and, and, and again, we're talking about the arrival of Rapper's Delight in the fall of 1979 is kind of the, the, the starting point, at least here locally in Seattle. As soon as that record hits, you got kids on buses saying rhymes, you got kids on buses saying that rhyme, and then saying, uh, saying you know, making up their own rhymes. And, and uh, you know, where you had uh, uh, kind of a, a sense of sense of place and a, a sense of geographic place by that previously mentioned line about the New York Knicks from Rapper's Delight. Uh, you started having people around here kind of do the same thing because what what many people as far as at least as far as rapping went figured out that in order to be relevant, you got to talk about you know I'm saying it, because at its core, rap music is talk, telling who you are and what it's like where you're from. So you couldn't be in Seattle talking about subways and huge project buildings because we don't have those things. So what uh, MCs, what rappers were doing is pulling like in just every other local scene, kind of pulling from the regional cultural stockpile as it existed at the time. And so you have gatherings, you have open mic uh, kind of contests. Uh, this is very early on. Um, and so people like, well, the first, the first group to really start getting uh, noise, making noise, uh, was a group called the Emerald Street Boys. Uh, and they were, so at this, today, hip-hop uh, seems and feels very siloed. If you're a rapper, you're a rapper. If you're a DJ, you're a DJ. If you do graffiti, you do graffiti. At this time, it, it was not uncommon to have crossover for all of many of, if not all four elements in terms of, you know, if, if, if you were a rapper at that time, you probably had a graffiti, uh, a graffiti tag and you probably broke, did some, a little bit of breaking and, you know, you probably fooled around and tried to do your thing on the turntables a little bit. And 
one of the uh, unique things about the Emerald Street Boys was that they had very intricate, uh, that not only rapped, but they had very kind of intricate choreographed moves on stage. And so you were getting a full show uh, when you saw the Emerald Street Boys play. And, and uh, it wasn't just rapping. It was a, it was a full-on party. It was dancing. It was, it was dancing. It was everything. And, um, as the, as the scene begins to grow, more and more people start to do it more, you know, music is, is, uh, record stores, uh, it, I, record stores kind of really don't exist anymore. But, but one of the things that is talk I talk about in the class is how record stores were not just places where you went and bought music, but there were social gathering places. There were places where people went and, and, and not just bought music, but talked about music and listened to music. Uh, you know, there would usually be be promotional copies in, in, uh, behind the counter that you could ask uh, the person working to play so you could hear it. And so there was, there was a, uh, a different environmental element uh, as far as, uh, as record stores went, um, but also uh, uh, breaking and, 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 and graffiti and, and, you know, people looking for, uh, for, for we don't have gr uh, subways here, so, you know, freight trains were quite often uh, in the southern part of downtown, we're quite often hit up. And in fact, that's a very popular place even today for graffiti artists to go down and, and work out their styles. Um, and so, but really, the, probably the most, one of the most important uh, figures in local hip-hop would have been and is a uh, DJ named Nasty Ness Rodriguez. And Ness Rodriguez is a Filipino-American uh, and he, in 1981, uh, on radio station KKFX, informally known as KFOX, uh, starts the show Fresh Tracks, which is a Sunday night show, and it becomes the first all-rap radio show west of the Mississippi. And Ness is, uh, he's playing, he's playing, uh, not only is he playing songs, but he's also doing what he calls a master mix, where he's mixing records live on the radio, live on air, from a variety of different sources. So one, you know, one master mix might include, you know, some Hall and Oates, and another one might include might include uh, some craft uh, work, and another one might include some Trans Europe Express, and another one might include some James Brown. So very eclectic sources that he's that he's pulling in, is kind of making work musically within the context of mixing in hip hop, and so. Uh, Nasty Ness meets uh, Sir Mix-a-Lot in 1984, I want to say this is, and they get together and they found um, what became known as Nasty Mix Records, along with uh, a, a couple of other partners, uh, including um, Ed Locke at the time. And so Mix-a-Lot's material starts uh, airing on K-Fox, and they start uh, uh, releasing music, uh, releasing Mix-a-Lot music on uh, Nasty Mix Records. And this culminates with the release in 1987 of the song Posse on Broadway. And Posse on Broadway uh, winds up being played on MTV, on Yo! MTV Raps. And the thing about Posse on Broadway was that during this time, um, you know, it's, it's kind of going back to that formula that I just mentioned. You know, if, if, if you're familiar with the song South Bronx by Boogie Down Productions from 1986, if you listen to that song, it gives you a sense of, uh, uh, of what the Bronx was like at that time. Even if you've never been there, 
the things that, uh, that KRS-One is talking about in that song kind of paints the picture of what the South Bronx was like at that time. And there's a similar dynamic with, uh, with Posse on Broadway uh, and Sir Mix-a-Lot. Um, however, uh, there's an important difference, an important distinction here uh, that I want to make about Sir Mix-a-Lot and what he was doing at that time. There's a crucial sequence in that song, Posse on Broadway, in the song in the video. They're going up to a, 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 a burger stand, famous burger stand on Broadway called Dick's, and they see, you know, they see another crew, and there's some friction between Sir Mix-a-Lot and his friends and this other group of guys who's up there. This group of guys, one of the girls he's with, this is all I'm, I'm narrating what the song is talking about. And, and one of the girls in the opposing group of guys likes Mixalot's crew and wants to go over and hang out with Mixalot and his friends instead. And the boyfriend of the girl from the opposing crew who is going to hang out with Mixalot's side doesn't like it and is about to go physically assault his girlfriend to keep her from joining Mixalot and his friends. Mixalot and his friends intervene and stop this man from physically assaulting his girlfriend by using some mace. Now you have to remember that this is 1987 and it's right on the tip of when gangster rap has started to become popular. Ice-T was already out, N.W.A., their early stuff was already out. And so people were knowing about gangster rap. And yet here is Mix-A-Lot, A, a couple of things. A, you know what I'm saying, standing up for women. And, and that was not exactly N.W.A.'s, you know what I'm saying, that, that what they were known for. You know what I'm saying, N.W.A. was calling women bitches and hoes more than anything else. So there's that. Then there's the other thing about Gangster rappers, you know, anytime that there was any kind of conflict with N.W.A., they were solving the issue with, uh, with an Uzi or, or, or a shotgun or an AK-47. Mix-a-Lot chooses to do that with Mace. Um, and so those were not exactly the things that gangster rappers were talking about. And that kind of gets back to the point that I made earlier about uh, artists from here not feeling like they have to do what everybody else is doing. It was okay for Mix-a-Lot to be Mix-a-Lot, and that's how he found uh, that success. And I'll say just one other thing. I went down to the Bay Area in the, in, in the fall of 1988 to, to go to undergrad, to go to college. It's down in the Bay Area. And I am uh, at a party down there and um, the, 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 whatever song the DJ was playing at the time, you know, people weren't feeling the dance floor was empty. So then that song goes off and the next song comes on and it's the, it's the little hi-hat. I'm, I'm not sure what the name of the instrument is, but it, sign it signals I recognize it inst instantly because it's the beginning to Posse on Broadway. And so I'm looking around and I'm like, who's playing this song at this party down here in California? And as soon as the rest of the party hears what song it is, everybody's hands up and the dance floor is packed. And so I'm bugging out now because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really confused as to as to why people down here in California are apparently in love with this song about Seattle. I was confused. Um, and then <laughs> to, to compound that, once I, I get down there, start making friends, start meeting people, and, I, and, I start, and people start finding out I'm from Seattle uh, and, and uh, who are, you know, are hip-hop people, who you know, hip-hop kids like myself, and they start asking me like, questions like, you know, what's, what's Broadway like? Or, or, you know, are the burgers at Dick's really good? You know what I mean? And they, they, it, is, it is through that song 
that they know these nuanced details about Seattle culture. And so that, so that was that was my first kind of uh, introduction to the fact that hip hop was able to uh, export culture, export local culture uh, on a worldwide scale. And I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes this genre from every other. Well, I have two quick follow-up questions. Uh, the first one is, is Dick's still around? And are the burgers really that good? Yes, it is. Uh, and <laughs> in, in fact, it's funny you ask, the Broadway location uh, is, is, is being remodeled. It's, it's due to, to reopen here soon. But, uh, but yes, mm-hmm. the, Dick's is still around. They have, they have multiple locations, so that's not fair. I can't act like <laughs> I haven't eaten a Dick's burger in a long time just because the Broadway one is being remodeled. But yes, it's it's it is uh it, they are still around and yes that is they are often referred to as uh as uh, as as among the best uh burgers in America not in America but in Seattle that you'll get at a burger stand you know yeah you can maybe go yeah, to yeah. a to a to a sit down restaurant maybe get some but just as, as a burger stand it's and I actually have to mention one other thing mm-hmm. so I don't know how familiar you are with that video but if you watch that video. They are on this, this, this Dick's location is on Broadway, and the owners of Dick's would not give Mix-A-Lot and the Nasty Mix uh, company permission to film on, on their property. So ah. the only thing that you see in the video is them driving in front of Dick's on the street. When they have the scenes where they're at a burger stand, that burger stand is not Dick's. That burger stand is a burger stand at a, is a few, a couple of miles down the street where they were able to get it and kind of make it look like it was dicks but it was but it was but it's and it's so funny because this this person dick i guess maybe dick at the time the owner you know was was completely unaware of the amount of worldwide free publicity that <laughs> yeah. mixalot was providing for him in this song and 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 and, and you know dicks is so iconic you know i it it, it could have you know once they said you know we're not going to let you film on our property you know he could have been he could have been petty and been like, okay, well, I'm going to write Dix out of the song. But, you know, Dix, it's a, it's a local icon. It's an iconic place. Mm-hmm. Everybody in Seattle knows about Dix on Broadway. And so he just, he just, kept, it, he just kept it in there. And, uh, in fact, uh, many years later, uh, when Macklemore was <laughs> not only allowed to shoot on the property but stand on the roof of the building <laughs> to film a video uh, many years later, uh, the owner of Dix apologized to Mixlot for the for the for the original snub and so there was some there was a i guess there was a yeah there was a little bit of closure there for uh yeah a real full circle story that is 100 (laughs) percent. let's talk a bit about the 1990s um because they are as you explained in the book they're they're a pivotal decade for the expansion for the growth of hip-hop as a popular art form and that's the case both nationally and in seattle as well so can you kind of give give us an overview of this period in in the history the kind of like middle point in this kind of bookended story that you tell so the 1990s is kind of a strange time because for a couple of reasons one is in the mid-1980s, there was a a piece of ordinance passed by the Seattle City Council called the Teen Dance Ordinance. And what the Teen Dance Ordinance basically did was make it extremely difficult to throw all-age events. It said that, like, people under 16 had to be out of an event, out of an all-age event by maybe, like, 10 o'clock or something. And and it made and it made you know it, it stipulated that there had to be 
for any uh, 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 all-age event, there had to be like a minimum million-dollar insurance policy to, you know, say just just stuff to make it very difficult. And 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 one of the characteristics of hip hop is its lifeblood has always been youth active, youth and youth activities and youth energy and and uh, the teen dance ordinance did did its best to put a stranglehold. Uh, on on those dynamics, the the all ages events were were really really it's it's how it's how Mixlot first started to make his name, uh, uh, you know, playing weekends at, at the boys and girls club, uh, you know, is is kind of how Nasty Ness first heard about Sir Mixlot, and so that 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 all age type of, of of dynamic has been an important part in growing the culture, uh, and so once the teen dance ordinance came in, it was eventually repealed. Or modified, I should say, in uh, in 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 the early 2000s. But throughout uh, half of the 80s and much of the 90s, it was it, it was uh, exceedingly difficult to uh, to put together uh, and hold the kind of events that, uh, that 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 fed that fed the machine, if you will, that fed lifeblood uh, into the growth of the culture. So you have so you have that aspect of it. And then the other aspect has to do with uh, grunge. And one of the interesting things about the grunge movement is that you have, for, for Seattle hip hop, uh, there's, there's the, the, the narrative has always been that there's, there's not, a, uh, there's not a, a distinct sound that, 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 you know, that, that, that character, characterizes Seattle hip hop. Uh, uh, New York, you know, stuff from New York in like the 80s, you know, the 808, the Roland 808 drum machine was kind of a, a distinctive hallmark that, that, that would kind of help characterize music from New York for, for a time in the 80s. And then in the late 80s and into the early 90s, kind of the funk synthesized sampling uh, that was the hallmark of the, the G-funk sound, if you want to call it that, was, was very representative of, of L.A. hip-hop at the time. But there was never anything that really sound, sonically that really... That really uh, really took off as a, as a Seattle sound. And this is in sharp contrast to, to the grunge sound, to grunge, which before it was known as grunge was actually known as the Seattle sound. Um, and so it starts to really take off into the early 90s and to the mid 90s. And, and just, you know, as I was, there's a, there's a, there's a page or, or so, maybe a couple of paragraphs in the book, um, just kind of cataloging all that was coming from, from, from this area, and as I was kind of just researching and putting it together, it was just astounding. I mean, how much was coming from here? It was just, it was, I mean, it wasn't just Nirvana, and it wasn't just, you know, Pearl Jam. It was just, it was Soundgarden. It was President of the United States of America. It was just, it was Mud Honey. It was just, it, oh, it was unbelievable, and just the amount of success, and records being sold, and, and shows, and coverage, and magazine covers, and and, and uh, was just cast a massive musical shadow uh, over the area. And I think this had a bit of an effect on hip hop as well, because I think there some, became something akin to what you might call Seattle music fatigue. Um, and this is not only, this is not only that, but this is uh, kind of on the heels of, uh, of Sir Mix-a-Lot winning the Grammy Award uh, in 1993 for Baby Got Back. Uh, and that right there was a was a stunner. That right there was was, was something that stunned the the music world. Not only because of uh, of of uh, Mixlot being from Seattle and he won it, but the people he beat. I mean, the other people who were nominated in the category 
for best solo rap performance that year were uh, MC Hammer, uh, LL Cool J, uh, Mark, Marky Mark Wahlberg, and Queen Latifah. So he was going up against powerhouse competition and won the Grammy Award. And so you have that, you have the rise of, of, uh, of, of grunge. And so either you had people who were just kind of over Seattle music or tired of it, or you had music scouts who were coming to Seattle. They weren't necessarily looking for the next Sir Mix-a-Lot. They were more looking for the next Nirvana. So they were, they were kind of focused on, on lifting up the, uh, the, and, and, and finding those next grunge stars. And so the 1990s, it doesn't mean that it wasn't active and it doesn't mean that there weren't, uh, numerous artists, uh, who were who were who were who were doing their thing it just means that it, it was in some ways i think overshadowed by by uh some of the things other going on some of the other things going on musically uh most specifically the uh the, the rise and just absolute dominance of grunge and just how much sway it had over the musical community and one thing that i hadn't thought about but i you know i don't know there was probably wouldn't have been been much to write about in the book, but one thing I hadn't thought about, but I was asked uh, in an interview about the book about about grunge and the connection between grunge and, and hip hop or lack thereof about why why there never really was any kind of substantial connection between between the grunge community and and, and local hip hop, and I, I don't really have an answer to that. That's it's an interesting question. I know that I believe that Sir Mixalot and the presidents of the United States formed a group called Subset, where maybe they did a couple of shows, but I don't think they ever released any music. So other than that, I don't really, I, I can't really recall too many, uh, too many collaborations. And that's an, that might be an interesting kind of question for somebody to delve into because you have two relatively established scenes, obviously one, uh, you know, much more popular and selling much more records, the grunge scene than the hip hop scene. But Two, uh, two, two established scenes, nonetheless. So it's it's always struck me as a as a little odd as to why uh, why the, we never really saw any any kind of substantial connection or collaboration between those those two communities. But that's 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 going to be have to be something for for another local researcher to dive into. Let's zoom in on the year 1999 for for a minute as we kind of bring it closer to the present day because 1999, excuse me, is kind of a pivotal year for Seattle Um, and it's a year that's defined by violence in a couple different ways. Um, Most famously, of course, at the protests surrounding the WTO that that takes place in Seattle in that year. Mm -hmm. But it's also around the same time, as you describe in the book, that you have the mayor of Seattle who is openly in, in the press pinning the blame for shootings and for murders in the city on hip-hop itself. Can you explain a bit about the context here and about the the perception of hip-hop among some white Seattleites and then kind of the pushback against that by hip-hop artists and black Seattleites themselves that are working to counter this narrative? Well, you know, uh, hip-hop has always been a very uh, a very easy scapegoat for people who are looking uh, past uh, you know, for people who want to look uh, uh, at uh, hip hop as, you know, the cause of a of a problem as opposed to a reflection of the symptoms. Um, and so the the this move by the mayor, Paul Shell at the time was was nothing new. And his and his, uh, you know, his quote was just, you know, along the lines of, you know, it's it's 
it, it has something to do with, you know, the, the, the wrong choice of music and, and uh, the, wrong, the wrong type of people. And, and, uh, and so that was, as someone who has been uh, a, a staunch admirer, follower, and, and sometimes, and quite often, defender of hip-hop, not always, because there are some things that are not defensible, but, but uh, quite often a defender. It, it, it wasn't a, a surprise to me to hear somebody say that. Um, however, this was a bit of a new one in the sense of this, this person saying this was the mayor. And so uh, one of the, one of the uh, first responses was by uh, a young man uh, named Jonathan Moore, uh, who was, uh, he passed on a, a couple of years ago, but he was uh, at the time and through his career an, an artist, a, a label founder, a manager, a producer, uh, so many different roles, event organizer, so many different roles. And uh, in, this, in this instance here, uh, he organized a, a, a peaceful protest in response. Uh, and, you know, his point was, you know, we don't have to stand out here and talk about us being civilized or us being, you know, for peace. We, we're already those things. We're not out here to kind of, you know, reinforce these things about ourselves. We're out here to, in, in this space, to respond to the things that are being said uh, and blaming and the things that are being blamed uh, on, on hip hop. And so the, the, the response I thought was great. And, and, and at that point, you know, Paul Shell was, the mayor, he was pretty much doomed at that point because of his, his, you know, infamous mishandling of that whole WTO situation. And that was one of the things that, you know, kind of on his way out, uh, you know, was kind of like a parting shot. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the next mayor that came in really kind of took a, a, a radically different approach uh, and went out of his way very early on to, to, to embrace the hip hop community. And he even established, you know, the mayor's award for hip hop excellence. And so we can see that some politicians want to uh, use, uh, use, use the issue of hip hop as a, as a uh, tool for divisiveness. And then some kind of see the, the power uh, in unity that hip hop can provide and, and, and choose to use it in that way. And then to bring it up to the present day, where does the Seattle hip hop scene stand here in the early 21st century? In the book, you referred to the 2010s as the Mecklemore era in Seattle's hip hop scene. Can you talk a bit about that and, and what, what's going on today? Well, so uh, Mecklemore uh, is an interesting story because he, he is very much the product of local Seattle hip hop. He is someone who who grew up, you know, who, who, as he started to be I mean, a performer. And actually, this is interesting because I just talked about someone like Jonathan Moore and the, uh, and the teen dance ordinance. Um, and so interestingly enough, it was Jonathan Moore who organized this event. Uh, and it was called Sure Shot Sundays. Uh, and it was a, a Sunday afternoon event, an all, an all ages Sunday afternoon hip hop event. So it fell within the confines of, of not having people out too late. Uh, and it offered excuse me, it offered an opportunity for young people to come and see, hear, and experience hip-hop of local, local acts. And that was, uh, the Sure Shot Sunday was, was where, uh, where Macklemore first performed live on stage uh, as part of a group called Elevated Elements. Um, and so Macklemore kind of works his way up through the scene. He's, he's doing, uh, you know, high school dances, 
uh, performing at, at places like this and, and works his way up. And the thing that I think highlights the success of Macklemore and ties it to Seattle is that as he gets to, uh, I think it's, I want to say it's 2012, where he releases um, his album, The Heist, uh, two things, two, two particular songs really uh, kind of define his rise to popularity, but also reflect what I was saying earlier about, about Seattle hip hop. If you think about uh, the songs Thrift Shop and Same Love, those two songs go directly against two of the longest held cultural norms within mainstream hip hop. Thrift Shop goes against the whole idea of bling, which is, you know, I mean, name brand clothing and, and fancy jewelry uh, and that kind of thing. And Same Love goes against homophobia. And so these two topics being addressed in this way through the lens of hip hop just goes back to my other original point um, about the uniqueness and originality that comes from here. Um, there's probably, there's, it's, 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 there's, I don't think there's any doubt that, that Macklemore's whiteness and the fact that he was, that he was and is from Seattle allowed him to engage in these, in these, I mean, controversial, I'm using air quotes for controversial, but at the time, you know, it was controversial within hip hop to, to talk about these things. It, the, the beginning of, of Same Love st starts with Macklemore talking about if I was gay, I would think hip hop hates me. I mean, that, that is just, that is just, that was just radical for the time. Because like I said, because of hip hop's, you know, strong, such strong hold on, on homophobia for, for, for so long of its history. Um, and so that, that there again is that, that, that indication of the regional isolation allowing people to feel creatively free and not like they have to do sound or, or imitate um, what other people are doing um, um, wherever else that may be. And I think that, you know, in, in, in social science research, there's always the, uh, the, the caution, the caution of, you know, uh, correlation does not necessarily equal causation. But I'm just working on theory here that if you think about uh, that song, and, and we do have to have to have to uh, make the point here that Macklemore is a, a straight identifying individual. But if you think about when that song came out and kind of the effect that it had, and he did this, he did this performance on the Grammys where he's on stage with Madonna and Queen Latifah doing the song and they're officiating all of these weddings, both gay and straight in the audience. And it was just like, you know, the peak of mainstream kind of recognition and validation. Um, if you think about uh, that song and then what comes after that song and you have artists like, uh, Lil Nas X, uh, you have an artist who, who, who identifies as gay and, and, and is out about it as a hip hop artist. You have people like Jay-Z uh, releasing the song Smile, uh, where he talks about his mother being a lesbian. Uh, you have a yard, an artist like uh, Young M.A., uh, who, is, uh, who, who, who is openly a lesbian and, and, and raps about that. 
Um, and it even goes back uh, to, to before Macklemore comes out. In the late 2000s, uh, you have a group like uh, The Satisfaction, uh, who were signed to Sub Pop and were, was a group that was a pair of girlfriends. Uh, and so that, that, that aspect of an LGBTQ uh, uh, identifying artist being signed to a major label um, really kind of helps, uh, in some ways, culturally, perhaps set the stage for Macklemore to take it to the next step. And then after Macklemore and his acceptance of that song and the subject matter of that song, you have these other artists coming out. And it seems as though there has been a bit of a cultural shift in terms of what the mainstream is willing to accept uh, now versus how that was in the past. So as we begin to wrap up here, I always like to ask my guests to try and take like a 35,000 foot view of, uh, of their work, of, of the book. So I'm wondering if there is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding maybe in, you know, a year, five years, 10 years, thinking about and remembering from, from your book, what might that be? Um, I think that I, I would hope that it would be the, 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 uniqueness of this area and region. Um, the support that local artists turn around and give to the community, I think is, 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 is I think it's unmatched. I mean, I don't know how it goes in other cities, but I cannot think that there is another city that really does it like Seattle does it. One example that I'll just throw out there is, uh, is in breaking, the breaking community. I personally think that there could be an entire book written on Seattle breaking myself. That's why, that's why I called the book A History of Hip Hop in Seattle, because there's no way that I can fully do justice to 40 plus years of history in just a couple of hundred pages. Um, and so if we think about breaking, we think about someone like uh, a young man who I actually went to uh, middle school with, uh, and his name is Carter McGlasson. And he go, he's a breaker who goes by the name of Fever One. And after high school in the 1990s, Fever moved to, uh, to New York City and uh, subsequently became a member of the Rocksteady Crew. Now, if you don't know, Rocksteady Crew is the hip-hop equivalent. It's a breakdance crew, and it is the hip-hop equivalent of, like, the Alvin Ailey Dance Company or the Joffrey Ballet or whatever you can think of that is the top, you know what I mean, uh, troupe or group in whatever dance field you're thinking of. And so... So Fever becomes the first person from Seattle to uh, become a member of Rocksteady. And instead of resting on his laurels, he comes back to Seattle and immediately starts mentoring young people. Like, yo, that's, that's, that's Fever from Rocksteady. You know what I'm saying? It's the people in Seattle know this. Uh, and he starts mentoring young people at, at a community center uh, in, a, in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Seattle called Jefferson Community Center. And there is a young man, a young Filipino man who comes and starts, starts uh, attending these mentoring sessions and, and Fever kind of, you know, notices him. And he wasn't the best breaker, but there was something kind of a special quality that Fever uh, noticed about him and took him under his wing and, and developed a relationship with him and started and, 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 and mentored him. And, and this young man, Jerome, uh, Jerome Ski, uh, becomes a founding member of a group called Massive Monkeys. And Massive Monkeys have gone on to win the uh, World B-Boy Championships in 2004 uh, at Wembley Stadium in London, England. Uh, 
and uh, Massive went on to also win uh, the R-16 in South Korea, uh, which is the, the, which was where the world breaking championships had migrated to in those, in those, in those years in between when they won it in England, uh, and, uh, and, and South Korea. And so you have, and, and then you have massive Mac monkeys coming back and opening their own studio. Uh, and so that is just, uh, multiple generations of dancers who achieve success turn around and look to bring others uh, along on that ride. And so that's an, that's an example of that. But then the other part I just want to also emphasize is just the, the, the uniqueness. And that's why I, I've, I've had, you know, when I've done talks and I've had young people kind of ask me, you know, what do you think? What is, you know, what is, and I'm just like, the, the thing that you need to remember is that if you want to call the people who have made it again, air quotes, the people who, here who have made it have done, done so doing things their own way. I use the I showed talked about the example of mix a lot and the, the thematic elements of Posse on Broadway. I talked about Macklemore and how he was willing to to kind of discuss and tackle some issues that that had been somewhat taboo within mainstream hip hop. But I'm also thinking about um, someone like uh, uh, it's a young man, young Lennox. And around the time of the writing of the book, he I think he was around like nine or ten years old or so. And young Lennox uh, uh, grew up, young Lennox had a dad who was, you know, probably about kind of my age and, you know, a fan of, you know, old school hip hop. Growing, growing, grew up listening to, to the hip hop of his day in the 80s and the 90s. And so what young Lennox would do is he would see like these albums. Apparently his, his pops had like a, a few, more than a few albums around. And so what young Lennox would do, artistically inclined, he would uh, look at some of these album covers and he would do his own kind of crayon rendering of these album covers. And there's, there's a great picture of him holding up his version, his crayon version of the album cover for uh, only, built by, only Built for Cuban Links by Raekwon, member of the Wu-Tang Clan, classic album that came out in the 1990s. And so he ends up doing a series of these crayon renderings of classic album covers and, and ends up having a, several of them shown at a, at a gallery in New York. And then later on ends up, ends up having his own exhibition at a gallery down in Los Angeles. And, and there was, there was no one who was doing that before young Lennox was doing that. That was a lane that he created for himself. And so the takeaway that I hope readers are, are able to, to, to bring from the book is just that this is a region that has done it its way. This is a region that has not felt pressured to try to necessarily jump on whatever bandwagon is there. This is a region that in many ways has artists who think in the opposite direction. And how can I not do what everyone else is doing, but do something that is different and original and really bring something new to the table. And I think that's really, uh, uh, at least for me, uh, and I hope for the audience, uh, one of the, the biggest takeaways from the book. And then finally, I always like to get a preview from my guests about anything that they are uh, working on now, any projects that they're excited about. So this book has been out for uh, maybe about a year and a half-ish at this point, came out in 2020. What have you been working on in the interim? What can we expect to see from you next? <laughs> well, um, this <laughs> what I'm working on now is, is in its most infant stages. And so we're still trying to figure out what it will look like or even if it will look like but it is a it is a uh still as to be yet undetermined uh presentation of uh discussing the 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 history of local high school basketball here in seattle there's 
there is for for a few decades now there have been a a disproportionate number of uh, college and professional players who have emerged from this region and uh, and kind of getting into the to the some of the reasons and some of the people and some of the some of the thoughts uh, behind the people who have created these some of these AAU programs and some of the coaches and some of the players themselves on what it is about the culture around here that really uh, promotes you know development and competition and camaraderie and 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 and, and allows for you know again a place that's outside of the top ten in terms of like po- population city like Seattle and yet you know is like within the top ten uh, in terms of number of uh, NBA draft picks currently playing in the league uh, and that kind of thing and so there's a, there's definitely a story to be told there not only about basketball but like I was saying about the book Emerald Street not only just being about hip hop but also being about local history and culture there's also a lot of that attached to, to, to the story of, of high school basketball here. And, uh, you know, just just thinking about basketball in Seattle, it's timely, too. I was just reading some rumors today that uh, Seattle might be getting an NBA team back again in the not-too-distant future. Ah, I think that that's a, I think that's a foregone conclusion. I think that uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that the NBA, having seen the NFL and the NHL already get teams in Vegas, mm-hmm. they're going to add, they're going to expand, you know, because you can't have an odd number of teams. you got to have an even number of teams. And so there's 30 mm-hmm. NBA teams right now. And so I... I would expect either this offseason or next offseason for the announcement to be made that two new franchises coming into the league are Seattle and Las Vegas. Dr. Dowdy Abe is a Seattle-based writer and educator and historian and is a professor of humanities at Seattle Central College. And his new book is Emerald Street, a history of hip-hop in Seattle, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Dowdy. It was a pleasure. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.